I want you to hear something. It's important. Run a new test series. The solar wind has disrupted communications more than once. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the IWMP podcast for your combination of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. I'm Matthew Porter. With me is Ian Porter, rep- reporting from the moon base, I'm assuming. <laughs> I'm his dad, he's my son, and I make him watch television. <laughs> and I don't know what this was this time. We this... went back to some pretty old stuff, but not as old as some of what we've watched, because I was watching this when it was first syndicated in the, in the U.S. But okay. I was really, still really young when this was on, in like, I think around 1972, Maybe. Okay, so this was like made in the like a couple of years earlier. I take it this was made in like 1970, and that's when it was originally broadcast. And I watched it when it was syndicated in the U.S. Uh, a few years later. So what we watched was Jerry Anderson's UFO. I I have words about this. This is the first Jerry Anderson TV show we've talked about, but I don't think it's going to be the last. I think there's a lot of Jerry Anderson in my past that you're going to be exposed to. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I've I've come in contact with Jerry Anderson stuff before, and I've liked a lot of it. Jerry Anderson stuff has this cool aesthetic. It has this – I mean, I, I love things that have that toyetic kind of – I could grab and hold this thing in my real hands kind of feel to it. And there's so much of that stuff – Live action and the um, Super Mario animation things that have that physicality because of the way they produced these and because of the way they were thinking about them in general. This does not mean everything was brilliant about them. This just means that they had a style I can be I can gravitate towards and then be re- be pulled away by the slingshot of that gravity. <laughs> so most of what you've seen of Jerry Anderson stuff has been the the puppet shows, the super marionation, because that's most of what he did. Yeah. But it's interesting how he has such a distinct style that crosses over between the puppet shows and the live action shows like UFO. Oh, yeah. there. It's it, Even if you hadn't told me, even if it hadn't said it was Jerry Anderson, I could probably guess it was based on looking at it. There's something about that that clean aesthetic, that pop of color stuff that isn't just 70s, but it's a Jerry Anderson 70s. It's a Jerry Anderson style of design. Right. It's right on that cusp. It's kind of mod 60s, but it's moving into the... I'd say more cocaine-fueled 70s, <laughs> not saying anything at all about Jerry Anderson or his production company and their their chemical habits, just talking about cultural style in general. Oh, yeah. It is the sort of style that will, that will say, this is a giant piece of machinery that in a couple of, in a decade or two, will not be approved by OSHA, or probably wouldn't be approved anywhere. But we're going to paint it very bright colors with an off with an alternating color accent as like a stripe down the side, and that's that's the entire visual design of it. You will notice it from a distance, and know that someone might get hurt. 
Well, we've let the uh, the momentum of this show kind of pull us into commenting on it right away, but let's kind of set the stage a little bit, uh, for especially for anybody who hasn't seen UFO. Oh, and by the way, it is available on DVD. It is also now on Amazon Prime, so good timing. It's just come back to Amazon Prime. If you've got that, you can see it on Prime Video. It's got a really cool new design logo for it, or new design poster art for its Amazon release. It does. That looks awesome. That that looks awesome, but it also doesn't match the style of the rest of the show. Oh, I don't know about that. I, it, it captures that d- dramatic action that the show is full of. Okay, it, it captures how the show thinks of itself. Okay, and I guess I think of it that way since it seemed that awesome when I was seven years yeah. old. But UFO, as you can, and this is not Project UFO, like I said, this is UFO. And the premise of UFO is that Earth is under attack by UFOs, and most people don't know it. Because the powers that be have been keeping it secret. It's not like there's full-scale war against uh, the people of Earth. But UFOs have been coming to Earth and have been kidnapping people. And as we learn in the very first episode, there will be spoilers, as always, in this uh, podcast. As we learn in the very first episode, they're kidnapping people and harvesting their organs. Because evidently, the UFO pilots are very human-like but their planet is, seems to be dying, and they seem to be dying, and they're harvesting people and maybe other things from Earth in order to keep themselves going. Very, very seriously, in that first episode, one of the doctors described their study as showing signs of hereditary sterility, which, if that sounds dramatic, it's for you. If, that, if you realize how that doesn't work... You're in my hand. If there's on this. one medical condition that could not be inherited, <laughs> you would think that it's sterility. Absolutely. <laughs> you ever you ever wish the first XCOM game had more quick cuts and way stupider costumes? If so, why? And this show is for you. Now, because Earth is under attack under under this kind of secret attack by UFOs, we have a response. And that response is Shadow. Oh, goodness. S-H-A-D-O, the Supreme Headquarters Alien Defense Organization. And and I'm just calling it now, in their offices, we get to see the, like, the plaque that has their organization name there. And it has these little inset tiles for those letters that make up the acronym. I think it was supposed to be cool and stylistic. I just looked at this and said, they have made those removable in case they find a better acronym. Because <laughs> I'm that did not... It, they say it so seriously, and it's so silly in their description. Especially because it has headquarters in the name, but it's used everywhere, even outside of the headquarters. Yeah, I guess... <laughs> maybe they're, they're using headquarters in the broader sense of, you know, this is the the supreme organizational head or you know they're using know. the royal headquarters yeah it's not it's not the physical location although the physical location where where shadow is commanded from is really clever in that it is hidden underground underneath a film studio so anything weird that's going on there any strange equipment they have to bring in anybody dressed oddly i suppose it's just 
because they're at a film studio somewhere, I think, outside of London. I did like that part. It does make a really good cover. They kind of gloss over it. Maybe it was just the episodes we've seen, but there was not a lot of use of that, you know, rich vein for story possibilities in their system. And there's a lot less Earth-based events that I expected them to take, you know, take advantage of this. Have something crash in the desert and send people out to air quotes, film a Western to check it. They could have done more of that. And they, I didn't see that in these episodes. Yeah, they really don't. It, it's clever, but they don't take as much advantage of the film studio cover as they could. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone there, I mean, it, it does, it does look like a basic office building and basic offices with a slightly Jerry Anderson style. But then there's things like picking up the, uh, the cigarette case and speaking into it and suddenly the room starts sinking because it's an elevator. Yeah. The, um, the commander's entire office is an elevator. So he, he's the head of the film studio. Supposedly that's his cover. He walks in, goes into his office and does the cigarette case trick you described. And then the entire office sinks down several levels to the underground base of shadow. (laughs) And it's a really cool effect because you can see this by, the the changes outside the window of the office as he sinks down underground and then past several dozen yards of concrete until he ends up in shadow. What oh. I don't understand is why he's got an office as the film executive. He's also got an office as the the head of shadow, which is on the other side of this underground base. So he always has to walk through the entire thing to get from his office to his office. I think it's just so he can nod at that one guy with the recumbent bicycle every time. I think so, yeah. There's this guy drives around with a little cart. Everybody in Shadow seems to have a job, and, and his job seems to be to drive this little cart around. It's not like he's carrying anything. It's not like he seems to be doing anything. He just drives this around the hallways. He, he, he's the delivery guy for the Jimmy Johns in the food court of Shadow. <laughs> oh, there you go. That makes sense. They gotta be freaky fast, don't they? <laughs> yeah, just, just recumbent bike through the halls of the underground facility. Do they measure his delivery speed in souls? <laughs> oh, good. They're always talking about the, the speed of their air, spaceships and UFOs in Sol, which I think is speed of light um, in decimal readouts. Yeah. I think they've gone over that at least a couple times. Oh, yeah. Well, they've definitely established that the UFOs themselves have faster than light technology. It all seems to still behave in a very Newtonian way. They just happen to be going really, really fast. Yeah, I mean, they were talking about having beams to track stuff that were faster than light. And I've got a, like, a rant of page here that's just a rant of a page that's just saying, like, wait, is that quantum entanglement? Are they talking about, like, gravitons? If it's a beam, then the particles would be infinitely heavy. That's a bullet, not a detector. (laughs) What are they doing? (laughs) Thinking about what was being speculated about in the the late 60s, early 70s, maybe it was kind of a gravity detector sort of thing. I don't know. Maybe. But, I mean, this is what this show did to me. I was sitting there just ripping my hair out. Well, while they have their the biologists parts. trying to figure out her in, uh, inherited sterility, they've got their physicists tr- figuring out how to see faster than light. I... Ah, my brain. <laughs> so you've got this organization. The command for this organization is in this underground base under the film studio. But there's a lot more to the organization. They've got a moon base. And the the, the moon base, its main job seems to be to track the UFOs, as they approach Earth. 
And they do that also with the help of an orbiting AI called SID, the something intercept detector or something like that. Yeah. I know, it's, like, I know his, his acronym is SID. It was like space intercept detector or something? Oh, I think that's it. And uh, that's just this unmanned satellite that houses this UFO, this UFO detection and AI supercomputer analysis device. It's got this like front knob on it that either looks like a skull or a bunny rabbit, depending on the direction you're looking at it. At least it does to me. I liked yeah. Sid. He was my favorite character, actually, because of that. <laughs> He's got about four lines in every episode about UFO detected, and he re- reads off some trajectory numbers. He also sounds just the slightest bit bored, though. They've got that, like, we're going to have an AI, so it will speak in a flat monotone, but it's still a guy recording these lines, because we don't have the digital processing. So instead, he just kind of sounds a little fed up and a little bored with what he's having to tell you. And very British. This is Sid. The UFOs in area NML-12 are still stationary. I think he's just the butler. He's the shadow butler. (laughs) Very good, sir. There are more UFOs. Butlers in space. (laughs) So Sid tells the moon base what the trajectory is. And the moon base sends out the interceptors. And the interceptors are really cool. The interceptors are cool until you get to the front. That's the coolest part. They are these little... A decade later after Star Wars, they would be fighter jet-like. But instead, they are just mobile one-shot launch platforms. It's a cockpit, engine in the back, giant missile in the front. They go out and fly out, line up as best they can with the UFO, and launch their missile. And there are three of them. Yeah. So they get three shots on each UFO. A, why do the UFOs never send more than three? I don't know. If, if they sent four, we'd be in trouble, because these guys can only shoot three times. Yeah, there'd be a, a guarantee that at least one would make it past the moon. And they always seem to fly pretty close to the moon when they're coming in towards Earth. You yeah. think they could just kind of go around I, a little bit? I'm guessing that they're... Oh, goodness, I'm overthinking this. I'm guessing that they're using the Earth's gra- the uh, combination of Earth and moon gravitation as a form of braking system to help slow themselves down for for orbital entry if oh, they are okay. going through the atmosphere. I'll buy that. Yeah. Uh, once again, page of, page of notes here, just trying to figure out what they're doing. But yeah, these things... I like the body design. The body design is excellent Jerry Anderson work. It kind of reminds me of the vipers from the newer Battlestar Galactica in terms of some of the uh, if if there is actual fighter plane and viper then this is further down that same direction on that same linear graph yeah they're kind of like really pudgy vipers yeah and right. i i love that but then it's got this like stomp rocket stuck on the front and it i don't know something about the line of it just messes with my head it i know it's in space but i want it to tip forward just because of the catharsis of seeing this unbalanced (laughs) thing fall over now those rockets are about the size of the interceptor engines so you know that they pack a punch yeah they are throwing a lot of material in a no you're going to go away now kind of a method of protection right i'm i don't know that you need a direct hit on a ufo with one of those to actually uh take it out of commission no but they don't seem to have a really good uh average in terms of uh kills per shot no they do not this is this is a very low hit rate 
there was usually at least one getting through every time, just in part for drama of the episode, but just in general. Now, fortunately, the Interceptors in the Moonbase are not the only line of defense that Shadow has to keep these UFOs from landing and scooping up people. They also have Skydiver. Yes, they do. Now, we see Skydiver, and they've made reference to a fleet of submarines, but we always seem to see the same one. With this same one captain. And so Skydiver is a submarine, but the front of it is a futuristic fighter jet. So when it has to step in and take care of the UFOs once they reach Earth's atmosphere, but before they've landed, Skydiver, the submarine, just sort of angles up and launches the nose of the submarine out of the water into the sky, and it flies around and uh, shoots down the UFO if possible. And he's got a much better... Uh, a kill ratio, I think, than the interceptors in space do. Absolutely. My goodness, this is the most Jerry Anderson creation ever to be designed. The submarine with a jet engine, a jet fighter for a front. Oh my word, this is... I love it for its sheer ridiculousness. This, you want one, you want the other, we'll give you both kind of mentality but it's also like we never see them pick up the jet again we never see how it gets stuck back on that's a good point we never do see the jet land we see the uh the pilot of the uh the sky one which is the front of skydiver after it's launched we see him get instructions to divert and land somewhere else or something but we never actually see... Does it have landing gear? Yeah. I'm just imagining him, like, having to skip along the water until he s- comes to a stop. And then kind of awkwardly sink down into the water just so that the submarine can bump him in the back and hook it back on. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned it was the uh, this this one captain. We see the captain of, of uh, Skydiver. He's the captain of the submarine. He's also the pilot of the jet fighter front of the submarine. So I guess second in command takes over the submarine when they have to actually fly around and shoot UFOs. He goes out, and, he yeah. goes out in a, um, some, a uh, suit in order to check something in person. Right. He definitely, he's from the captain. Uh, uh, um, uh-oh, I almost made a reference that we have decided not to make a reference to. But he's from the school of captaining. That means the captain actually gets to do all of the hands-on stuff. Well, it's hard to really uh, send out people based on their shirt color if everyone isn't wearing a proper shirt. (laughs) This is where I get to rant about the uniforms at the moon base and on the submarine. The moon base has these silver uniforms and all the girls are wearing these purple bobcut wigs. Now, that's something I liked early in the series... It changes a little bit, but early in the series, it seemed like the entire command staff of the moon base was female, headed by Lieutenant Gay Ellis, played by, oh, I'll remember her name in a minute, terrific uh, actress, not that you could necessarily recognize her. But yeah, they all the uniforms are the silver uniforms with the purple bob wigs. Why? I, I, the, apparently the wigs and the eye makeup were part of the uniform, I mean, that makes it worse. That makes it make less sense. I don't know why all the hair is purple. And it just, 
I mean, it, it looks, I guess, air quotes, futuristic, but... Now, Mrs. Darling Wife has a theory that they actually have to wear some kind of helmet in the moon base, and that's what's under the wigs, and the wigs are just to add a little bit of aesthetic value to these helmets that they have to wear. I can understand that, and I can appreciate that answer, and I will add to that concept being that the reason all the wigs are purple is because movie studio and ordering a crate of purple wigs somehow got less attention. I think that ultimately the reason they have for the purple wigs is Sylvia Anderson. Yeah. Um, I, I, Sylvia, I've liked your designs and other stuff. I liked your costuming and other stuff, but I don't know what went wrong this time. And she's, she uh, gets credit for the future fashion designs for this uh, TV series. So that includes the purple wigs and the silver outfits on the moon base and, and uh, I guess everything else. And the, uh, you mentioned the, um, the uniforms on the submarine. Actual fishnet shirts? Yes. Oh my goodness. This broad weave fishnet shirts are what everybody's wearing. We're going to put a bunch of people in cramped spaces known for not having good temperature regulation. So they're going to have absolutely no shirt, at least in terms of utility or functionality. It's just going to be vaguely aquatic themed. I guess that's it. They just kind of wanted to be nautical. And this was the first thing they thought of for nautical. (laughs) It's an interesting look, though. You've got to admit, there's nothing boring about any of the costumes in this entire series. Sylvie, I did us a wrong. What is this? And the, I like... the fishnet shirts, men and women alike on the crew of the Skydiver, all the fishnet shirts. The women do get to wear some kind of a bra or halter or something underneath the fishnet shirts. Uh, the, the men don't, and that is obvious. <laughs> and uh, yeah, felt... that's um, and when he's going to go out and fly Sky One, the captain gets to put on a leather flight jacket of some kind. I guess I guess the submarine is following uh, modern Tumblr rules in terms of what's allowed to be shown. <laughs> I guess you're right. <laughs> so, yeah, this has kind of set the stage there, though. We've got the the moon base to immediately inf- get the information. We've got the interceptors to try to shoot down and, of course, get most of them. And then Skydiver will have to send out their only captain in a plane to shoot down the rest. Meanwhile, all the drama and intensity at the main headquarters about whatever the actual specific thing happening is. And just to close the loop, there's also the transport aircraft and the mobiles. The mobiles are um, essentially big ATV rover type things, kind of of, uh, armored personnel carriers, kind of tanks, and they are essentially what rolls out if the uh, UFOs get to land on the ground somewhere. They send mobiles out to intercept them on the ground and take care of the UFO pilots before they can harvest humans, I suppose. Oh, and then the transport, that's the plane with the droop snoot? Uh, yeah, there are a few planes with droop snoots. Yes. There's, uh, there, there's like a, a personnel transporter, and then there's the, well, there's the SST is the one you're thinking of, and that seems to be mostly personnel. Okay. But then there's the heavy lifter um, transport. Which may also have a droop snoot. I don't recall. Yeah, I mean, why I, are we calling it a droop snoot? Well, th- there's a video on it explaining how uh, planes where the nose tips down is a droop snoot. Oh, that uh, that's right. You you showed me that. Since pilots couldn't see out of the plane because of angled landing, engineers put together a solution. The Concorde featured a droop snoot. Droop snoot. Yeah, the, the snoot would droop. 
the snoot drooped. Uh, and I bring that up in part because I want to point out that if those are a droop snoot, then Skydiver is a snoot shoot. <laughs> and the great thing about all of the, the machines, the, the spaceships and the, the submarines and the mobiles and the transports and all that is we get a chance to see Jerry Anderson's style model work there. And it really is good model work. I love the and model work. It, it, uh, it stands up to anything being made at the time, uh, for, certainly for television. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very well done in some ways because I think that they had a different scale. These ones have a different level of detail. There's some of them that look, some of them that look a little rougher, I admit. But there's something about the amount of detail to like the inside of the lift platform for the interceptors, which looks like it's a little higher than some of the other stuff I've seen. And you're comparing it to what? Other Jerry Anderson other stuff Jerry or Anderson other stuff things made at the time? Other Jerry Anderson stuff I've seen. Okay. It's like it's like they had more physical space to put in Greebleys or had more space to play around because they knew they'd have more of one shot and a clear idea of what that one shot would be or something. I'm not sure. There's plenty of reused footage of some of these things. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's mostly in those reused ones that I'm seeing this extra detail. But I feel like it's it's higher res Jerry Anderson in that sense. Yeah, I mean, this is not you know cinematic quality necessarily, but they had a, a I gather they had a fairly decent budget for a TV series, just given the uh, the production values that we see, and also they had Jerry Anderson and Sylvia Anderson and their the people they worked with were really good at squeezing a lot of stuff up for the screen out of a small budget. Yeah, they they were excellent at that, and I. I've always liked that part. There's something about the idea of going in with, I've got a, a pile of popsicle sticks and some acrylic paint, but I'm going to make one thing that looks awesome enough. I can show it to you a couple of times and you'll still get excited every time. I, I grew up with a lot more anime in mm-hmm. terms of just what was coming into the media, Pokemon and stuff like that at the time. And I've been raised being shown a lot of these other things and there's something always in my mind that compares Jerry Anderson's use of effects again and anime shows like Sailor Moon and Pokemon at those reused segments, the transformation sequences. It's that same kind of mentality in terms of use of, of your, your time in an episode. But they both have that. They also both have that same, you know this, get excited kind of psychological effect to you. Yeah, we'll put a, put a lot of resources into making this one scene look good and then build associations with that scene so we can use it again and you can get excited about what's going to happen next because you're seeing this scene. And if we and if we've used it a couple times then, we can show you one version which looks the same until something stops or slows down or blows up and that break of what you expect will be all the more dramatic for that and they've play they can play with that sometimes here even if it's not a shot for shot by showing you a model for an establishing shot time and time and time and then putting that model over in the corner and blowing up the opposite corner of the screen you go <gasps> because you've become attached to that other thing and, and and that's that's part of how they're doing this and they're using those effectively and I think there's some of that same philosophy in the the sets and the prop work that they do. The 
the the expectations and the emotions that given sets set up like the the main uh shadow control uh, room underneath the film studio and Straker's office and things like that. Oh, Ed Straker. That is a cool name. I mean, there's a lot of good consonants in that name. Oh, I'm 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 between the white hair and and that name he he sounds like he's a, a villain in an anime or, or a Final <laughs> Fantasy. There's something about it. He's got that aha kind of. I didn't expect him to be our good guy. Yeah, he he is not. Uh, he it, is in charge of the good guys, but Straker is not a good guy. And I'll come back to that in, in, in a second. Yeah, he's when we talk about the characters more. But in terms of the sets, they had all this great computer stuff in the control room. And if you watch, especially British TV productions in the rest of the decade, you see a lot of that equipment show up again because they must have kept it in a warehouse or something. They keep reusing it because it just looks so cool and convincing. It They, they do know how to have a flashing light montage. Oh, yeah. A lot of blinking lights on those computers. Oh, yeah. And a lot of quick cuts in general. The opening flashes the, like, 1980 at you how many times just to establish when it's, in theory, taking place? Yeah, and that's a very good point. This takes place in 1980, and that was a big factor in how important it was to me when I was a kid, because I watched, I had already watched a lot of other science fiction shows that took place in the far future, and that was all cool, but... Watching UFO, I think it was my brother, who is a few uh, years older than me, kind of explaining to me when this was supposed to be taking place and how soon that was. And I remember doing the math and figuring out, like, I'm going to be in high school when all this stuff is going on. How awesome (laughs) is that? When I get out of high school, I can see about getting a job on the moon base. Okay, if if I can't, some reason I can't get a job on the moon base, I can try the submarine corps even if I have to wear those shirts. But this is going to be the world that I live in when I'm a teenager and a grown-up. How awesome is that? It was like futurism that was within reach, that was going to affect my life. Even though now, of course, it's retrofuturism, I remember feeling like, wow, I'm going to live in the future because I could count until 1980. I knew when that was going to happen. I, I want you to make a note of that here because I don't want to get into it yet, but I'm going to bring it back, bring that up again. Bring up that that idea you've got there. Okay, I like that. And I I figured that um, I would also get to wear some of these cool clothes. Not necessarily the submarine um, uh, shirts, but everybody in civilian life, uh, everybody who's not in uniform, they all seem to be wearing Nehru jackets. No more lapels for anybody. Yeah. And it was kind of a cool look. It was understandable but it was very futuristic looking yeah i think in in the civilian clothes of 1980 is where sylvia anderson really shined i I, yeah the civilian clothes were great there was something very smooth neoprene to the entire thing It, it there's something that just kept reminding me of laptop cases for some reason maybe it's the bright colors and the very the the way the the seams all came together on things and I can appreciate that. Definitely, those had more of a consistent... Okay. And some of the really cool lines and bright jackets and things like that and the awesome sleeves. It was very swinging 60s kind of a look uh, 
applied to a neighbor jacket. The 60s came back and they're here to do their taxes. Welcome to the modern fashion of 1980. Kind of like, <laughs> okay, I can get behind this. And meanwhile, all of the uh, the uniformed personnel in the Shadow headquarters under the film studio, the uniform was like beige, skin-tight jumpsuits and very high boots. Yeah. Which is a look, but I don't know how practical it is. It, it's kind of like the, the farther you got from major society, the worse your outfit gets. When, when you're on the moon, when you're stuck underneath the ocean in a submarine, no, all fashion dies. When you're underneath uh, in the secret base, there's a little bit there, but it's starting to decay. If you're out amongst the people, it's a, it, 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 there's still some style going on. Maybe it's just my preference, but that it, there, was, there was a distinct gradient here. Yeah, I, I think that you're definitely applying a, a 21st century lens to this, oh, because I think that there were probably a lot of reactions to this at the time were, you know, check out those submarine guys. That is a look. And I think that the, uh, the the very tight uniforms in the Shadow headquarters uh, probably was a lot to do with showing off the physiques of the people they cast to be uh, the Shadow operations people. Probably. Although there are all these you know, young, very fit people, although occasionally, like, suddenly there'll be this guy who looks like a 275-pound stevedore still in a skin-tight outfit. It's like, oh, wait a minute. This does not work for everybody. No shame, but... Oh yeah, it I, definitely it's it's not a look everyone can pull off. I think I'm better off with a very full cut Nehru jacket than I am with the uh, the fishnet shirt or the uh, the Shadow Headquarters uniforms. Oh yeah, well that means you get to pull what Stryker does, and every time he's in the room, even if he's not speaking, which he's usually the one speaking if he's in the room with the other people, the fact that he doesn't change out to the base uniform usually, he's usually still in his jacket. Yeah, and when he takes off the jacket, you can see that it's not just trousers that he wears with this jacket. It's this, like, coverall unitard type thing. He's usually wearing some kind of a turtleneck, but then his trousers, like, turn into a vest, and it's all just kind of a one-piece thing. Again, it's fascinating. It looks probably comfortable, and it looked so believably futuristic when I first saw this. Yeah, there's enough instances of that, like, turtleneck with the slight v cut to the neck and then like a white undershirt there were a couple of moments in like two episodes where for a where i thought we were following a priest for a moment because yeah, yeah, they're wearing were. this black and i just see this small patch of white at the collar and i'm like oh, wait a no that's not a priest yeah this is just the guy getting shot at why why is that guy dressed as a priest oh no he's not that's just a turtleneck never mind yeah we, we've talked about what they're wearing, and we talked about where they are. Let's talk about who is there. Right. Well, we mentioned Ed Straker. His cover is film studio executive. He's really commander of the Supreme Headquarters Alien Defense Organization. Commander and Straker. And he is not a nice guy. No. He is a rotten guy, but I think... I mean, I say he's a rotten guy, but I think one of the points behind this whole show is... Keeping people safe isn't easy. Difficult decisions have to be made, and there's no time for trying to make everybody feel good. He wants something done. He wants it done now. If it's not done right, you are darn well going to hear about it. He's just kind of unpleasant, though. At last entry. Did you send it? Yes, sir. A refueling schedule transmitted on security code B. Sorry, sir. 
How long have you been with us, Ford? Just over two years, sir. Two years. Long enough to know how important security is to Shadow. Now look. This headquarters, controlling moon base, the satellites, and a fleet of submarines is 80 feet below a film studio, right? Now 400 people work up there, and not one of them knows all this exists. I have to play games, pretending to be the studio's chief executive. No one even dreams what my real function is. That's what security's all about. I'm sorry, sir. Sometimes it's pretty difficult. Difficult? So you think it's difficult, huh, Ford? Well, I'll tell you when it gets difficult. Have you ever thought about the victims of UFO incidents? Have you ever considered their parents, brothers, sisters? What do we tell them? He's also like the only American there. He's a former American uh, Air Force colonel, I think. So maybe there's some commentary there in this British series having the the American the American is in charge, but and you respect his command and how he does it, but you don't necessarily like him as a person. Yeah, that might be a thing there. And the first episode was in some ways establishing him and establishing all the the organization that we're talking about with a rather routine mission. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, uh, of setup in that pilot, of course. The second episode we watched is where we get to really meet the the other main character. I want to call him that because he pops up later, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I would say that. I think Colonel Foster, you could say, is the other the main character and kind of our main action hero sort of character. The other characters we meet at the beginning are uh, yeah Ed Straker, his like best friend slash right-hand man, who is, I think, is one rank as lieutenant. I do not remember his name, unfortunately. We mentioned, um, or maybe he's also a colonel, I don't know. We mentioned Lieutenant Gay Ellis, who uh, seemed to be in command of the moon base at the beginning of the series. And a few of the other people who work in Shadow. But you're right, they, they introduce in that second episode uh, Colonel Foster, who doesn't work for Shadow uh, when we first meet him. No, he is caught in the the crossfire while experimenting, while flying an experimental aircraft, and kind of witnesses a an operation, and goes a little intense trying to hunt down the truth here, but in a in a way that lands him a job. Right. He uh, it, it it looks through the entire episode like Shadow is trying to cover this up. To the point of of using violence and intimidation against Straker, if they have to, uh, excuse me, against Foster, if they have to. But then it turns out that like every step of this was a setup and they were really just testing him and then recruiting him to uh, to join Shadow. And, and I do wonder if this is the inter is this is the process for every single person who works for Shadow? Did they have to go through that for every <laughs> single person we witnessed? That would mean that everybody in Shadow is like a UFO witness or, or contactee, which I, I would motivate them, I suppose. It would motivate them. That might work. But I don't know. You, you recognize the pattern, though. Men in black. Oh, absolutely. Somebody who's very competent at a, a separate job finds out about the the secret organization to protect us against aliens, and it, essentially by discovering them and not giving up, proves that he's worthy to join them it's it's classic in that sense this one was 
very much I almost wish episodes two and the first and second episodes were flipped because yeah. I'd rather have been introduced to Shadow as this unknown organization from the perspective of a civilian and then be given an episode that explains to me the structure of them and then continue instead of actually knowing what he's running up against. Oh, that would have been cool. That would have been a better mystery. Really seeing the whole, seeing Foster's whole investigation from his point of view and not knowing really any more than he had uncovered. Mm -hmm. I like that idea. That would be cool. They're both excellent episodes. And then episode three, or at least the third one Amazon has on its listing. looks like they did that in production order instead of airing order. So I take it this aired later. Yeah, either that or we just jumped around the list more than I realized. But yeah, the third episode that we saw was really weird and grim. I'm going to make this very clear comment. I think this is, we have to give Straker some pathos now, because if we keep on making him this much of a hard jerk about things, we're going to lose audience. We have to give him pathos fast, and it's a horrible way to do that. Yeah, but it's not like he comes off as a great guy in that episode either. No, but you wind up feeling sorry for him at the very end in some ways. I, I guess, guess you do, I suppose. And that's where it is. Yeah. Let's not beat around the bush. They kill off his kid. Yeah, like the one thing you really don't do, they did. They did. They yeah. introduce that he's a dad. They introduce the kid. They have this really happy, upbeat opening. I was really uncertain where they were going when they started this. It went on for a while. Yeah. Well, not, not completely happy and upbeat because they make it clear that his marriage has fallen apart. I think yeah. there might be an up, another episode that shows the details of that, how the the strain of this job kind of destroyed the marriage, but he had a son. Yeah. And then we see this and then we see how the, the marriage is broken apart. And it's this, your son gets hit by a car, is in the hospital only an experimental drug from America could help him. He rediverts like uh, a plane from Shadow to bring this over. And then that plane gets rediverted again for a mission. Right. And the kid doesn't make it. It's like, oh my goodness, UFO. There is not a lot of, ch there is no chill here. Come on. <laughs> it really, it is. And it, you know, there's, there's no, no redeeming comment or lesson or anything at the end. I mean, I think the last lines of the episode are his ex-wife tearfully screaming at him, I never want to see you again. This is just dark. Yeah, and he's just staring at the floor, sad in an avocado-colored hospital waiting room. That's all there is to this. It is just, after the action-packed adventure of the other two episodes... Even this one had its sci-fi action in the middle. That one just... Ouch. And it seemed like it was... It, it could possibly have been kind of a story of redemption where this very important but very demanding job that led to his marriage being torn apart, he can use the resources this job gives him and pull some strings and use it to save his son's life when he wouldn't otherwise be able to do that. But then it goes wrong because, again, the job has to take priority. Defending the Earth against the aliens has to take priority over his son. And that's like the title of the episode, A Question of Priorities. 
Yeah. It makes him out to be still not a great guy. And at the end, though, you feel sorry for him enough that maybe, maybe it could temper an audience from hating him outright as fast as I assume they will. I guess it's hard to argue with his decisions in that episode in that he did everything he could for his kid and he didn't even give the order to divert the um the transport so the mobiles could land and um intercept a a grounded ufo his second in command took that step figuring it was the obvious step and straker's not here he's distracted by something i'll give that order so straker didn't even make the decision to divert the transport he just had to live with the decision and i think kind of admit yeah it was the right decision overall because the mission of shadow is so important the needs of the many of now i'm doing it now i'm making the <laughs> reference i'm not supposed to you can fill in the rest of that you but like <sighs> and what gets me is that hidden inside or tucked inside this episode was a really cool ufo story yeah. that didn't really get to play out as much as it could there was apparently a ufo pilot trying to defect to earth and was doing so by he like crash landed because another ufo had tried to shoot him down he gets to a cottage of the of this blind old woman and sets up a transmitter to transmit on shadows secret frequencies he doesn't know any english we don't even know if the ufo pilot can talk but he sets up this transmitter and Shadow starts hearing this blind lady and her bird transmitting on their frequency, and that at least gets them to investigate. The whole idea, the whole story about a defecting alien UFO pilot, there's so much that cool was... stuff that could be done with that, and they really don't. Eventually, the other UFOs get to the defector before Shadow can. That was amazingly interesting, and the fact that it is this cool espionage story... Wrapped up in this sad pastry packaging makes for a very odd hot pocket. Yeah, it was, there was a lot of interesting stuff there, but it leaves you feeling just sad and unsatisfied. Like, the story you told me was really sad, and I really wanted to see more of the other story that you started telling me. Like like a hot pocket. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So we watched one more after that, and we watched four episodes of this. I think there were 20-some episodes of the one season that they produced. But the last one we watched was very moon-centered. Almost all of it took place on the moon. Yeah, there was, an, there was another base on the moon? Yeah, a commercial mining base, a little tiny uh, exploratory operation. I gather it was there temporarily, and Straker was not really happy about it being there at all, because he thought it would get in the way of uh, shadows operations up there he, he was he was a few moments away from yelling the moon is ours <laughs> in terms of that and yes. like trying to claim it as as territory interesting that uh, in an offhanded comment at one point he said they're just wasting their time up there all the useful minerals have already been uh removed like wow we were busy in the 10 years for between 1970 and 1980 or is he saying they did it is he saying shadow like Went in and took out everything out they could to build the base themselves. Maybe, but still, there's a whole, the moon is, is, is pretty big 
to completely denude it of useful minerals in the space of 10 years? Man. Yeah. My goodness. There's all this concern about the uh, commercial mining base interfering with Shadow's operations. And then there's a, a meteorite that at first they start tracking it. They think it's a UFO. It turns out to be a meteorite, and it crashes on the moon near the mining base. And that leads to some communication back and forth between Shadow and the mining base. And then the radio problems kick in. And every time there's some crucial radio transmission, whether it's getting tracking coordinates for UFOs incoming or the, uh, the land a ship. Yeah, computer guidance for uh, a moon shuttle that's landing, the something interferes with the radios. And, of course, Shadow thinks that it's the fault of the mining folks. And it turns out that instead it's a device in the crater where the meteor landed. Right. That was no meteor. That was the aliens uh, sending a device down just to disrupt the transmissions. So they don't know enough to send four uh, UFOs instead of two or three. But they do figure out, hey, we better disrupt the stuff going on on the moon and maybe a few of us will get blown up. Yeah, there is a there is a level of smart, but not a level of common sense smart from the way the aliens approach this. Yeah, maybe that's just their way of making the aliens alien. I guess, and you know, they don't think quite the way we do. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm giving them uh, more credit than is due, but I, I I like movies and TV shows where the aliens truly are weird. And maybe this is a little nod to that. Uh, Absolutely, I can I can completely completely appreciate that. This is also per- postulating a future where we sent those wigs with those people onto the moon base. So even the humans are a little weird in this one. <laughs> that one though plays out a little bit more linearly. That f- fourth episode we watched, it was good though. Yeah, kind of a straightforward it's, action it's story. Pacing was weird in the way a Jerry Anderson production can sometimes be where some scenes seem really long. And then there's a bunch of action, a little compressed together. And when you're doing this on a tension curve where you're trying to like get people unknown, like what, when's it going to happen? What's going to happen? It's great. When you've got something a little bit more mundane, as mundane as a jamming signal can be in a sci-fi story, it doesn't quite fit as well. Yeah, in some ways, that last one was a little, the last one we watched was a little more typical of TV of its time, in that the first few that we watched, they did pack a lot of story into their their time slot, and the pacing was really quick. There wasn't, there weren't many times when I was kind of looking at my watch and wondering when they were going to get on with the story in those first ones we watched. But yeah, the one, this moon one, they didn't quite have enough story to keep the pace up the way it had been before. It was good, though. Oh, it, it definitely was. And it had good characters. Even the supporting characters, the one-off characters, they get good actors, and they're well-written. They're, they're distinctive characters. And any show that can have someone just casually lighting a cigarette in a moon base kind of has a <laughs> style to it. Yeah, cigarettes on, in space. Cigarettes in Gotta space. Gotta love the, uh, the early 70s. I think we had a good time watching UFO. We might come back to some more of it. There's a lot more of it to watch. Yeah, let's get our final final review here. Yeah, so what do you think? First question, as always, is binge or no binge? Uh, I'm I'm uncertain here. In some ways, that fourth one and its pacing weirdness makes me uncertain because those can be hard to binge. 
when combined with the fact that the third episode was just an unexpected gut punch, I'm going to say no binge. Just because if you watch too many of these in a row, I can't guarantee what you're going to get with at least our sample size here. And that feels kind of like an emotional Russian roulette in a weird way. Okay. I think we're disagreeing, uh, which we don't often do, but I've got to say binge. Okay. Because I think the world building is so good that it's fun to just immerse yourself into there and watch several episodes running and uh, to kind of binge the series in that way so that you can just kind of accept some of the weirdness of the setting and go with it and... Even if the episodes are uneven, if you get to a grim episode, the next one's probably going to be an action-packed, interesting episode. If you get to a slightly slower episode, the next one's probably going to be a little more energetic. So I say binge. Okay, I can I can see what you're saying there. If you, When you look at it as a whole, it'll probably level out more. Right. Okay, I can appreciate that. I, I might be able to switch my mind on that one. No need to necessarily. It's interesting that we're, we have a different response, even though we've observed the same considerations about the different episodes. Mm-hmm. So next question is, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? <sighs> Ooh, this is a tricky one. There's potential in these story parts. The the secret organization, the the aliens coming in to harvest organs, all of these excellent pieces. I'm going to say rest in peace and strip mine it for ideas. I don't think this has to be brought together in this same package. I think that you can pull pieces that the Jerry Anderson oeuvre and, and history is full of great ideas. And some of these ones might do better if left with fewer extra pieces so that that one idea can be looked at more clearly with the, the secret organization or movie theater and such as, as just a small example there. So I'm not sure this needs to come back all, all intact. Okay. I'm disagreeing with you again there. And and by the way, you mentioned strip mining it for ideas. I think a lot of that was done in, especially in TV in the seventies and eighties, but I would like to see this rebooted. I don't think you can revive it because in revival, it would mean that what came before is still canon. And I don't think you can have this continuing alien incursion over a generation or more now and still have the story running in anything like it was before. At some point, the scenario that they set up in this would have turned into either the aliens give up or there's all out war. And that's just a very different kind of story. Mm-hmm. But I would find it really interesting as kind of a post-X-Files, 21st century approach to the whole alien menace story to bring back this idea of the secret organization that is largely military but is secret. They've got this underground base and this moon base and all this stuff. And their job is to both keep the UFOs secret and to keep them from getting to humans. And that would be, that would be really interesting. I'd love to see that rebooted. Okay. I think that on either of those, I can come back to that point I said we could we should put a pin in. And that is, you talked about this when you were a kid being a, look at this future I get to live in, and being excited about that. And that's something I'm, I don't feel I got a lot of, and I'm sad about that. A lot of the sci-fi, a lot of the future stuff was this, this post-Blade Runner 
this the matrix kind of our hubris will get us and our resources will run low and this this kind of the future is going to be hard get ready for it kind of wait yeah it was and, like a combination of cyberpunk and eco catastrophe right yeah and that just filled a lot of the sci-fi and i i, I have an affinity and a, a love of that style now because of it but there's not that same sort of the oh look at this i could go be, work at the moon base kind of excitement and i wish that there'd been something like that even if it's not this so if it's if the show is pulled apart for pieces or if it is rebooted either way i'm hoping that that kind of core of how it can excite an audience would stick around because that's something that i think can is missing in many ways elsewhere yeah i think i think you're right and i like that and i'm glad i got a chance to kind of share some of that excitement that i had in my youth with you by showing you this and and trying to communicate what it felt like at the time because you're right, it's not something you got a chance to experience just because science fiction was so different when you were growing up. Even even if my final thoughts on this show were a, a mixed bag of why at some of the design and <gasps> about other design choices all at once, that core and that heart to it definitely pulled me in, and I loved that. Well, good. I'm glad we watched this then. And I think that wraps us up for uh, for this episode of the IWMP. Thank you, everybody, for uh, for downloading and listening. Uh, we appreciate that very much. And Ian, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at itemcrafting, on Instagram as itemcrafting, or at itemcrafting.com. And you can find me at by Matthew Porter on Twitter or at matthewfporter.com for anything else I'm doing online. And that's two T's in Matthew. And you can find the show itself at IMMPcast on Twitter or IMMproject.com, which will have all of our uh, back episodes and a contact page where you can reach us if you don't don't choose to uh, reach us on Twitter. So feel free to let us know what you think of the show. And if you want to let other people know what you think of the show, uh, please consider going to iTunes, leaving a review, drop some stars on there if you like. And you should see in the show notes links as to where you can find either the shows that we talk about or other things that we've mentioned. So thank you for listening. And remember, go find something new to watch.